Awesome. Thank you very much. Ruth, great job. I always give her a lot of stuff to read <laughs> just for fun. Um, <clears throat> okay, so yeah, in case, you, in case you're one of those um, bad parishioners who skips the worship and announcements, uh, we just announced that we're doing a, uh, uh, an after party, like a sermon after party, because there used to be this thing that would happen where we would, after like service, like I would just hang out for hours and talk to people and hang out. And none of that happens anymore. And uh, we, we all miss that, the people that we would talk to. So we are, <clears throat> we are literally going to just start a Zoom, Zoom room. Uh, you go to our website, you click on it, and um, we might post the link somewhere in the, in the chat. Where would the chat be? Over here? In the chat. In the chat. Um, and, uh, and just join us. We don't have big plans. I'm not like, it's not sermon part two. It's not like some big, well-planned out thing. We just want to see how you guys are doing and talk and hang out and catch up and joke around and, and get some prayer requests and like find out what's going on. Um, and so it, it may get serious. It may get awkward. It may get funny. Who knows? We don't know. We just know that we miss you guys and uh, we want to keep all that rolling. So uh, this is our passage today, um, Acts 11, 19 through 30. And what tends to happen to me is <clears throat> I'm oftentimes geographically challenged. And so when I'm reading the Bible, they say, we went to Antioch and they went this and they went there and they did this and that. And one of the problems is that Jerusalem is always up. And so it'll say they went uh, up to Jerusalem and they're in Antioch, but Antioch is like 400 miles north and they're going up to, it doesn't make any sense. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to walk you through all of this today. There's four particular things that are happening in this text and I'm going to sort of lay them all out, help you perfectly understand exactly the progression of this text. Uh, and then we're going to talk about like what it, what it meant for them, what was going on in their world, what's going on in our world, and how does it sort of, uh, where does it intersect? What can we see? Where does it intersect, intersect in different places in church history? Um, so yeah, we're going to do that. My voice is a little hoarse. I, I already taught a class today, and then I just sang a bunch of songs, and it's worn out. So I'm going to get scratchy, and I'm, if I get loud, I'm going to get scratchy. So here we go. Um, <clears throat> first thing I'm going to do is this. I'm going to lay out the four events of verses 19 through 30, all right? And I'm going to take my time. I've, I've, it's a relatively long sermon, but I'm, I'm not in a hurry. I've got literally nowhere to go other than back to my house again when this is over. So um, here we go. I, I'm going to list to you the, the four things that are really happening here so that you can sort of understand fully the, the, the scope of the, of the comings and goings and the travels. Okay, so it starts off with this. Um, the Lord came to be pronounced to the Greeks. That is 19 through 21. Um, this doesn't seem fascinating until you realize that they didn't send anyone there. These are people, uh, children of the diaspora. These are Jewish Christians who were running after, after Stephen was martyred and stoned to death by Saul. These Christians started running for their lives and scattering. And as they are going, they're teaching people about Jesus because persecution oftentimes um, spreads the fire farther than it would had you not tried to stop it. So, um, <clears throat> hey, Miggy, I get some water. I'm, I'm just going to like lay down. Take a nap and die. Um, okay, um, so they find out that these, that these Greeks um, in Antioch are, are, are becoming Christians. Um, and they're very surprised by all of this. Um, Antioch is 457 miles to the north. Um, and somehow, Christians are forming there. 
and they didn't send anybody. These are just people running, okay? So let me, um, let me I want to show you this on a map so you can sort of gain our bearings of where we are. Here's a bit of a map. Here we go. Um, Mediterranean Sea, island of Cyprus, Jerusalem down here, Sea of Galilee. Uh, we have um, Jerusalem here, Antioch up there. Um, again, between these two cities, a distance of 457 miles. Um, that's a long ways. That's like Georgia from here. All right. Um, now, um, so they find out that this is going on. And oftentimes what happens is they, uh, wait, did I, did I show you point two yet? I don't think I did. Let's show you, let's show you point two. Let's see what's going on here. So there's point one. That's the first thing that's happening is they, they, they come to find out that there's, there's Christians there. Now, point two is this. Here's the second thing that happens in verse 22 through 24. The news of this makes its way back to Jerusalem, and Barnabas was sent north to investigate. So, oh, thank you. Thank you, brother. Now, um, so the news that there are Christians there in Antioch makes its way all the way. Oh, thank you. Uh, oh, well, I'm like a, like a regular church now. Got my stool? Got my water? Ah. Uh, now, um, I think you're supposed to point out your wife on the front row and talk about how beautiful she is too. Um, so, you're supposed to, I've seen, I've seen it done. I've seen it done a lot. Um, now, um, verse 22 through 24, the news makes its way back to Jerusalem. They hear that this has happened and they decide we are going to send some people north. Now, how in the world does news spread like that? Well, in the ancient world, it was very common for the pilgrims who were traveling to and fro and moving around, uh, traders, people traveling on the roads, to gather up the information, to, to go to, like, to a public area and to learn everything that's going on and to take it down to the next city. And they could gather a crowd and they could give information. Sometimes people would give them monetary gifts, alms and stuff like that for their travels, for giving them information. So oftentimes if you met a foreigner at a restaurant, um, yes, they had restaurants. If you met a foreigner at an inn or a public square, you could sit with them and you could ask them, what's going on? Where have you been? What's going on in that city? What's going on in that city? And apparently a few of these pilgrims traveled through and they're telling these Christians in Jerusalem <clears throat> that there are Christians in Antioch and they are shocked at this. And they decide, you know, we should do, we should investigate this. And this is very normal as well. If you see something interesting happening, you can send somebody to investigate this thing. So they send Barnabas, north, the 457 miles all the way up to Antioch to see what's going on. And Barnabas investigates this, what's happening there. And he, he writes back and reports basically that he could see what he calls visible evidence uh, that he calls signs and wonders, such as miracles and speaking in tongues. And this would also include um, marks of fellowship, which is like sharing the table with people, the, the dinner table with people who you would never share the table with. And this is a shocking thing in the ancient world. This is one of the marks... Uh, that proved to them that, that, like, yeah, these are real Christians because nobody else does this. The Christians alone do this. Um, and so the marks of fellowship were there, the devotion to the apostolic teachings, the sharing meals together, praying and caring for one another. All of these things are present. And so Barnabas realizes, yes, these really are churches. These are Christians here. And he's surprised and he sends word back. Um, so... Barnabas, after spending time with these people, they have a lot of questions for him and he's trying to help them. But what happens is Barnabas realizes that this is a huge job and there's a lot of people here and he needs to teach them all. And so he says, I need some help. I'll be right back. So Barnabas needs more help with the church, with church planning. And so he heads further north to fetch Saul at 
Tarsus. I know I wrote four there. Ignore my typos. Um, so Tarsus is north, sort of uh, northwest of Antioch. You're going to go around sort of the coast there. Um, another, how far did I put here? Another 87 miles. So these guys are getting around. So he gets up top and he meets with Paul. He says, Paul, I need some help. Um, you are well-educated. You can come help me um, with all of these new Christians and these, these, uh, these Christians in Antioch. And so they travel back together. Um, and point four, the last thing that happens in this passage is that these prophets are sent north to Antioch from Jerusalem, um, resulting in a collection being gathered as a relief effort for the Jerusalem for a coming famine. So what happens is the people in Jerusalem, this is verse 27 through 30. This is the end of it. So these Christians in Jerusalem say, okay, um, we need to form a bond with these Christians. If there really is a church there, one of the ways that you would form a bond with people is by sending them assistance of some kind. It was an offering of grace. Well, at some point here, one of these days, I almost did it this week, but we are going to open up and talk about grace uh, from a, a first century Palestinian sort of new perspective understanding of what we now know about grace that we maybe didn't know during times like the Reformation, about how, the part that grace and the gift, the grace gift played in the ancient world. Um, and so we're going to talk about that. Basically, Offering somebody a gift isn't just this free thing that you're asking for nothing in return. It's, it's an offer to enter into a relationship of some sort. So these Christians in Jerusalem, they want to form a relational bond with these Christians in Antioch and, and sort of solidify that we are your brothers and sisters. We are with you. We are for you. And so not only have they sent Barnabas, but they send, um, they send some prophets north to sort of assist them in the teaching. That's how they respond. Um, in which case, the prophets give word of this apparent famine that is coming. This guy named Agabus stands up and he says, there's going to be a famine. It's going to cover the entirety of the Roman Empire. Um, and the Christians decide to respond to the gift of grace from the Jerusalem Christians by taking up an offering to support them through this famine. Because they know it will be particularly hard in large places, in large cities. So, that is overall... Everything that is happening in this passage, these four things. Churches pop up. Um, they send Barnabas up there. Barnabas is like, I need help. Barnabas goes to Paul. And then some pro prophets meet them there. Paul and Barnabas teach them for an entire year, the text says. Paul and Barnabas sit there. And apparently before the prophets got there, Paul and Barnabas had been educating these Christians in Antioch for an entire year uh, so that they could understand the message of Jesus. Um, and that, so that they could be sort of grounded in this solid teaching. So what we see here is in this passage, we see, we see these two different roles here. We have teaching and we have the prophets. Um, so Saul met with the church and he taught, Barnabas and Saul, they taught a great number of these people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch, by the way. Only three times in the Bible are people called Christians. The first time they're ever called Christians is right here in Antioch. Um, from what we can tell, it was likely an insult. Um, that they're making fun of them, calling them Christians. And of course, that would be an insult because their leader is somebody who was stripped naked and assassinated and killed um, by the most shameful way of being killed in the Roman Empire, crucifixion. And so they assumed it was an insult to call them Christians. And they say, cool, we'll identify with that any day of the week. Um, so they're, they're teaching them for a whole year, it says. And then... 
Some prophets are sent. So these things work together. The teachers and the prophets are there. They're working together. Um, there's always in the modern church a tendency to lean towards one or the other. And it's very hard to find a real good balance between prioritizing teaching and the prophets, the work of the prophets in the church. Um, and some communities value solid um, teaching and some value sort of this um, more, I would say, loose, spirit-fed, prophetic ministry. What did the prophets do in the, in, the, in the first century church? What did they do? Well, these prophets, their role was very specific. Um, they, they existed basically to call people to take part in what God was doing in their specific time. Um, the prophet is in tune with the Spirit of God. They are led by the Spirit of God in the same way that Jesus was. They are discerning. They are listening. They understand how God has worked in the past. And they understand that how God has worked in the past is likely how God will work in the future. And so they are alive and they are awake and they are paying attention to it. Um, the prophet has this deep knowledge of the past and how God has worked. And that's what they're looking for. So these prophets are there and they come after the teaching has happened so that the people are ready now that they've learned everything that there is to learn about Jesus. Um, what did they spend this year learning about Jesus? Well, a lot of things really. If you're going to learn the whole story of Christ, there's a lot of things you're going to learn. Modern day churches are, are, are mostly, we're, we're a little content just saying, um, you're a sinner, Christ died for your sins, you're forgiven. That is not the story of Jesus, though. It is much, much bigger. It would be all of the things that you see in the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer, the reinterpretation of the law in the Old Testament in light of Jesus, how Jesus always says, you have heard it said by Moses, but now I say this. Um, the, the idea of the, the, that the new kingdom is at hand, um, as well as they're going to learn about the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Christ, and what it means, how it changes our understanding of what God is doing in the world and making things whole again, um, how the death of Jesus exposed sort of the, the, uh, the impotence of the power of the empire, right? Like the worst they can do is kill you, but Jesus is resurrected. It's totally like saying basically your power is useless against the Christ against what God is doing in this world. Not only that, they're going to learn about um, the ascension and what it means now that Jesus has not just, it's not like he flew away into space. Jesus ascended to the throne. Jesus is now ruling. Jesus is king and he is ruling over everything. These other emperors, these other presidents, these other kings just don't yet understand this. They don't yet know it. But Jesus is king above all these other kings. So for a whole year, they're learning this. And then these prophets show up. And now that you know this, the prophets say, I want to point out to you what's happening in the world. And with this knowledge that you now have of Jesus, I want you to contemplate our role in it and let us discern together what we should do as a church. There is a famine coming. And instantly, the Christians know what to do. Instantly, they, they realize that there will be people in need. Their, their first thoughts are not for themselves. Um, they don't start stockpiling for themselves. Uh, it's different. They think, well, we should take up an offering and we should send it just in case they get hungry. Well, you're going to get hungry too. Well, maybe, but they, they could get hungry too. So we're going to send money there first. So what they're doing, they, they fully understand Jesus, okay? Now, um, the work, I say all of that to point out that the teaching and the prophecy, they go together. The, the intellectual understanding of the scriptures, the exegeting of the text, and the discerning of what God is doing today. These two things are not two separate things. They work together. They go hand in hand. Um, the understanding of God comes first. 
The discerning of what God is now doing in light of what we know about God comes second. So you have to get a good basis of who God is. And you have to understand well how this works. By the way, this is why we create all these experiences and spaces in the church for you to learn about God. This is why I do um, church history for lunch. This is why sometimes I do Bible for lunch. This is why we do these Sunday sermons and we exegete the text. And this is why we want you gathering in your churches because you are in this city and God is there with you. The Spirit is leading you. And as you pray and as you contemplate and you tell stories of what is happening in your life and in your world, you begin to get prompted to look, okay, here's what I think God is doing. And that means we should take part in it. And it, it prompts action. It is not just understanding. It is not just belief. Now, I want to pause that for, for a while. We're going to pick it up near the end of the sermon. I want to contemplate now the situation that they were in because I find it very interesting to compare the response of the church in Antioch to the famine that was coming their way with the famine. I, I, I find it interesting to compare that situation with the response of sort of the medieval church uh, to the, the plagues that were going through in their day and the famines that were happening in their day, and we have a lot of church history about these things. Um, not only that, the church during World War I and World War II and their response to these tragedies of war in the world. Um, and I want to compare that sort of with the response of the American church to COVID, if you will, today. I know you don't want to do that, but sometimes we need to because we need to understand what the Spirit of God is doing. So we're, I, I want to talk a bit about these three things. I want to talk about the church's response to war and famine and plague and how the church has responded to all these things. Remember, um, this famine that they were told was coming was going to cover the entirety of the Roman Empire. They didn't know what existed outside of the Roman Empire. Very few people had ever been there and survived. Like, none of these Christians knew. As far as they knew, Roman Empire was the end of the world. It was a one-world government in their eyes, okay? Um, and yet, so, I mean, so there's this language of like, yeah, there. All the Christians are going to be in this thing together, right? But it's sort of like they really, really were. Like they made it even. They, they really did think of each other and not think of themselves. I read some stuff this week that sort of like lit me on fire as I was like writing this sermon. Um, at first, when I'm thinking about because um, I, re I read about um, Bonhoeffer's response during the war. I'm going to talk about some of these. Ernst Kasemann's response during the war um, and genocide. I read about, um, oh man, Karl Barth. A lot of them going to talk about him this morning and his response uh, to the tragedies going on in his day. And when you look at the church today, you can see some things that Bonhoeffer, uh, I'm sorry, that, that Karl Barth saw very clearly. At first, our first response was to kind of huddle in our homes, right? Attempting to sort of pray that this angel of death would pass over. Two weeks. We're all going to shut down for two weeks and that's what we're going to do and this thing is going to blow over and we're going to, we're going to sort of take the, put the, the thing on the, on the doorposts, like the blood of the, and we're going to pray and, and we're going to be contemplative and it's going to pass over and then we're all going to open back up and go about our day and nothing's going to go wrong. Um, however, that's not really what ended up happening. There was plenty of there was plenty of denial. There was plenty of, of we're all in this together talk as well, but we really weren't. And so one of the things I read this week was by William H. Williman, a theologian and a writer. And here's something that he said that stuck with me all week. He says, uh, contemplative isolation is easier if you can afford it. Only 20% of African-Americans have jobs that enable work from home. The person who gazes at me from behind the glass at the supermarket would give anything not to be forced to serve me. Though I am asymptomatic, I could still be her executioner. Not much togetherness in that. 
Unlike the church's response to the plagues of the 14th century, uh, the 14th century I'm hearing little self-examination and no penitence. And the reason he points this out is because as a church historian as well, he understands the t- traditional response of the church, of a healthy church, has been repentance. It has been self-examination. It has been what has gone wrong to bring us to this place. Um, it has been what has gone wrong in the world to get us here. Um, what part did we play in this evil? And what part can we play in its absolution? In the ending, the absolving of this whole thing. Because there are times uh, when our theology is applied to sort of a testing fire, if you will. There are times in our existence um, when we find out whether the things that we have heard and that we have taught each other about Jesus are real or whether or not they are figments of our own imagination, whether or not we have built something false. Um, This, in fact, is, is where we have gotten some of our best theological work was during the worst times of crisis. Um, our absolute best work of the church fathers came out of their own persecution, their own martyrdom. Um, some of the greatest writings, even in the last two centuries, have come during incredibly difficult times of suffering in the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote his, his amazing book, The Cost of Discipleship, in the middle of a genocide. Um, Ernst Kasemann wrote his, his commentary on the book of Hebrews called The Wandering People of God from a Nazi Prison. Um, Karl Barth wrote his really a breathtaking commentary on the book of Romans. If you've ever read, if you read any commentary on the book of Romans, Karl Barth is a solid one. Um, it's incredible because of the situation in which it was being written. Um, in, he writes it in 1918 after watching the most revered professors, theology professors and religion professors in his life, the the Christians that he looked up to, after in 1918, watching all of them um, turn and sign oaths of loyalty to Wilhelm II, the the German Kaiser, at the run-up to World War I. And he was shocked. And he could not believe that this was happening, that these Christian leaders would get behind a leader like this. And he instantly recognized the theology that had been taught at the university about this inner Jesus, this, uh, this inner Jesus who sort of calms us and, and motivates us to accomplish our dreams and, and brings us peace um, on during rushing waters and um, just generally fills us uh, with... with um, with dreams that we can accomplish, dreams of greatness, um, that this Jesus was complete crap, didn't exist. And in fact, uh, was actually likely responsible for plunging them into this war against the things that they felt threatened, the things that their faith gave them. And Karl Barth stands back, mouth agape, shocked at what these professors are doing his theological heroes. And so um, he learned through all of this that bad theology absolutely wilts in the testing fires. By the way, this is Karl Barth. I forgot to put his picture up. There he is, uh, strapping young man. Um, he, uh, he, he learned that bad theology wilts 
in the testing fires. Either it will be appropriated by strong men and the Bible will be used and you will hear them quote the Bible and it will make you feel proud and haughty and you will follow them or it will be drowned out by conspiracy theories or it will be abandoned as, as useless. And it is. Any theology that bows down during times like that is, is absolutely useless and should be thrown out and should be burned up in the fire. If you've ever read Barth, you might notice that when you look at the dates of the, of the books that he is writing, many of them are written during incredibly difficult times of war, but he never mentions the war. Why? Because he understands that he is writing to a church in all times that he believed was privileged to live through times of upheaval. That it was an absolute privilege to live through this. Um... Times when bad theology wilts and falls. It burns up like chaff and it, its adherents are exposed as, as syncretists and pagans. And, and, and that they just, they're Christian in name only. But really they are grabbing all the philosophies and the mysticism and the, and the mythic of the world and adding it to Christianity to prop up these desires that they have to accomplish in the world. And that was the first thing that he understood when World War I broke out. The second sort of purge of bad theology that he noticed came 20 years later when Karl Barth was a professor at Bonn and he watched the church again fall in line behind a strongman dictator and the Nazis. And as he watched um, the church bow down and, and, and worship Hitler and follow him, uh, and, they, and they would say things like, literally, I don't approve of everything that he stands for, but, but God can use him to return our country to its former greatness. This is literally the things that they would say. And so they would watch as the church did this, and he watched again, and once again, he began to celebrate because he understand, oh, bad theology, some more of it is now going to wilt, and it did. And so he understood, and he blamed what he blamed, basically, in the church was timid biblical interpretations. Um, that's what he blamed for the ugly state of, of German Christianity that he saw around him. Timid interpretations. Um, interpretations that simply entertained. They soothed uh, the life that people were already living, that they used the Bible to uphold. Interpretations that allowed them to merge divine and human kingdoms into one sort of wealth-building enterprise. That God is is invested in your business succeeding and you becoming wealthy and making a great name for yourself. But now, in such a timid reading of Christianity, um, he understands that none of them would ever have been able to actually admit that Jesus is Lord when Jesus threatens their way of life. When their own Jesus threatens their own way of life. Um, because, as we talked about last week, their theology was not sincere. It was chipped, it was cracked, it was bent in ways it was never meant to go. And they had used other parts of the scripture to silence Jesus and smooth over the chips and the cracks. And so... We have to understand that the church is not a museum. Um, of, uh, it's, it is not a bunch of people living more morally than everyone else. The church, and this is what inspired me by this, by this piece by, by uh, um, what was his name? Williamson, right? Um, that I, I read a little 
earlier. I always forget his name because it's, it's kind of repetitive. William H. Uh, William H. Williman. The thing that I, the thing that, that, that he says that, that really stands out to me, he says this. He goes, look, the church is a truth-telling mouthpiece of God. It is a truth-telling machine. That is what it is. That is what it is here for. We say the true things that the nations of the world cannot say to themselves because it will cost them too much. That it is godly to rid the world of both poverty and excess. It is a godly thing to rid the world of both of these things. That it is, it is Christ-like to allow your own blood to be poured out rather than demanding that the blood of your enemies, your mortal enemies, be poured out. That the Christ-like choice is for you to die rather than them. And we are supposed to say the things that the world and the nations of the world cannot tell their own people. And we circumvent them. And we say it directly to them, one-on-one, house-to-house, street-to-street, community-to-community. We don't need to say it from the top. We say it from here so that it can be heard. And so when the people started walking out on his sermons, uh, uh, Carl Barth, when they started walking out on his sermons because he talked about the church, when uniformed Nazis started showing up in the back of his room with pads of paper and pens writing down the things that he's saying, and he jokes and he says, oh, I didn't know Hitler had such an interest in preaching nowadays. Um, I'll send him some of my sermons. And he did. He literally sent Hitler a stack of his sermons, and it resulted in Hitler kicking him out of his own country. And as he is getting kicked out of his own country, Karl Barth meets with his students one last time before he is sent away. Um, and his students look at him and they say, well, what do we do? Look at our people. Look at our world. Look at our nation. What do we do? Give us a benediction of what we should do. And he looks at them and you know what he told them? Here's what you should do. Exegesis, exegesis, exegesis. He's like, read the text. Read the Bible for real. Pull everything you can out of it. Paul and Barnabas understood the power and the story of Jesus. That is why Paul and Barnabas take an entire year to teach the people everything they possibly can about Jesus. That that is why it is important to study and read and become as intellectual as you can to learn it. Exegete the text. Um, once people really understand the message of Jesus and his kingdom, they are then ready for the words of the prophet to enter in and to point out, here's what the Spirit of God is doing. And you know what to do because you know what Jesus did. You know what his apostles did. You know what the followers of Jesus have always done all through church history because you've been paying attention. A famine is coming. It will cover the entire empire, they said. And what does the text say the Christians did? They stood up and they said, this is a ploy by our foreign enemies to take down everything that we've tried to build. Or they said, we should stockpile food and, and arrows so that we can survive and protect ourselves. No, they did none of that. It literally just says, uh, they took up, I'm on the wrong passage, they took up an offering. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift uh, to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. That was their response. It was not about themselves. It was, what's the Christ-like thing to do here? Oh yeah, pour ourselves out so that others may live. That is the response. And it's not complicated. They said nothing about their rights. They said nothing about what they deserved and their privileges. They instead said, I'm going to give up everything that I possibly can so that 
others may live. Why? Because this is what Jesus does, and Jesus has called me to follow Jesus. They knew what God had done. They knew what God planned to do in the world to set everything to rights again. They knew the role they played in it, and they knew what the Spirit of God was calling them to do in the here and now. And so Luke says that as each one was able, they provided to help for their brothers and sisters in Judea. They were a part of a kingdom where the poor and the starving would never be allowed to exist. In the Roman Empire, they would. In every country in the world, the poor are just allowed to exist. In the kingdom of God, they are not. Not because we keep, kick them out or build the walls to keep them out. Because we eradicate their poverty. And here's the thing. It goes without saying that if you hear the Bible taught plainly and you think that the one teaching the Bible is attacking your preferred governing structure, your kingdom is plainly of this earth. Every time I teach about God's plan for the world and taking care of each other in poverty, not every time, a couple times a year, somebody emails me, like last year when I got emailed and accused of being a Marxist. Look, if someone reads you the Bible and exegetes it, and you see them as a threat to your governing system, and you accuse them of being the most evil thing that you can imagine, you are on the wrong side of the kingdom. You are a part of the wrong kingdom. You need to deconstruct your theology and rebuild something stronger and better. Um, thank you. I see that hand. Uh, <laughs> all three people in the room. Um, and if I'm going to be honest, like, you lack imagination. That's what you lack. You lack imagination. You cannot fathom a world in which your enemies are not slaughtered but are reconciled with. Can you imagine that? No. But that is what God promises. So learn how. Can, you, you, you cannot imagine a world in which famine and plagues actually purge evil instead of, instead of create it. Because it activates the Christians to do the right things. You cannot imagine a world in which all are fed, all no home. You know the song, all are free, justice done. Peace is the way, grace is the law, love is the rule. You cannot imagine a world in which Jesus is king because you've got your own. We're doing something different though. The church is a truth-telling machine. That is what it is. House to house, street to street, city to city. And so, what do we do during famine? We exegete the text. What do we do during war? We exegete the text. What do we do during pandemic? We exegete the text, and it teaches us what to do. Um, this is what we do. We exegete the text every time. I want to read you this quote. In times of trial, we exegete the text, and we listen to the prophets. This is what we do in times of trial. We read the text, and we listen to the prophets. And you might say, but how do I know? Like, where are the prophets? How do I know the prophets? Oh, you'll recognize them. They, they, um, they're going to annoy you. They're going to be incessant with their proclamations of Scripture. They're going to be uh, pointing out injustice and suffering. They're going to be the ones that you'd least expect and that you're least likely to listen to, that you don't want to listen to. They're going to be wildly different from you um, in race and lifestyle and understanding of, of how the world functions and works. This is how prophets always are. They live in the desert. They eat bugs. They wear 
camel's hair. They, there's several prophets that like, one of them just walked around naked for, for three years. Um, one of them literally soiled his underwear, buried it in the ground and came back and then dug it up and pulled it up and held it up in the air and said, this is what God thinks of you. Like this is, the prophets are out there and they're on your nerves, but you should listen to them. God has sent them. That is, that is what their role is. They, they're the ones that you would least expect, that you least want to listen to. They force you to see what you do not want to admit. They attack your privilege. They attack your apathy and your lethargy. But you know that these are the same words that came from the prophets of the Old Testament. And so you go to them, you go with them to the food bank and to the protests. And you give up the things that you love for a while and you put on your mask and you give generously to those in need. Why? Because you understand who Jesus was. You understand that he's king. And you can discern what the spirit of God is doing now to provide life for people, to make things right again, to make things whole again, and to tear apart some structures that probably need to be taken down. In times of difficulty and tragedy and trial, we exegete the text. Our bad theology is going to wilt and fail in times like this. And so watch it wilt and fail. Look for it. Look for the theologies that are absolutely failing right now. And point them out. And repent of them if you are a part of them. And what you are left with is the realization that you are a member of the body. A body that is present, that is the presence of the true king. A king whose kingdom will have no end unlike every other kingdom. That is what the church is. It is a truth-telling machine. Um, we're going to go into a time of communion, and uh, I actually don't have any communion elements today because I showed up and someone had raided the fridge and taken all the grape juice, and the, the body of Christ has left the tomb apparently again. Um, but maybe you do, and so I want to walk you through it. Um, there are two elements. There is, there's the wine and there's the, uh, the bread. The bread represents the body of Christ, broken for the world, sort of like the church. This is what we are called to do. The, um, the wine represents the blood of Christ, poured out for the world. This is how salvation enters in. This is how it works. And so we take that bread and we take that wine and we break the bread and we dip it in the wine and we eat it. And we ask that God would send his gospel down into us and touch the parts of our life that we have yet to allow the gospel to touch. And we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. And so right now, will you please take the bread, take the cup, and take and eat it in remembrance of Christ, whose body was broken for you, whose blood was poured out for you, for your healing, for your forgiveness of sins, um, and for your salvation. When you are finished, join me today in a collect prayer. Um, and then we will be on our way. Pray this with me. Oh God, our helper, who is present with us, help us to silence the noise around us. Lead us to a place of rest and internal peace. Strip away the wax we use to cover our flaws and bring true healing to those broken pieces. Remind us of the purpose for which we were created so that our lives and characters become a reflection of you, bringing your kingdom to earth. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Have the greatest week of your life. I love you all. I miss you all.
we will be together, no doubt, one day.